are listening to a podcast from The National. OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. Everyone knows that acronym. Maybe they don't always know what it stands for, but they know that it comes along with the subject of oil and crude and energy markets. There's a big meeting coming up in Vienna, their headquarters at the end of this month, where there's an expectation that they will act once again with their non-OPEC allies to ensure that the oil price stays up. Now, this is and been an unprecedented period uh, since the end of last year where OPEC have become very, very relevant once again to global energy markets and politics. Now, that may seem surprising to you who haven't been following this closely, but there was a long period of time when OPEC wasn't particularly relevant. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi. This is The Business Extra. I'm joined by Chris Nelson. How are you, Chris? Very well, thanks, Mustafa. So we're looking ahead to the OPEC meeting at the end of the month, and mm-hmm. everyone's wondering whether they will go through with it and extend this output restraint deal that effectively the Saudis and the Russians have put together. Mm-hmm. Um, and oil prices are at peaks, aren't they, at the moment? Yeah, well, um, certainly at the, today, um, the uh, the market and traders are, are very positive that uh, there will be extensions of the cuts. Uh, we've got um, oil's heading for its highest close since June 2015, with uh, Brent uh, for January delivery above $63 a barrel, and WTI at around about $58 a barrel. Um, so, yeah, the, the uh, expectation is that the cuts will be extended and um, that uh, oil will, the oil price will continue to recover. Um, how realistic that is, um, only time will tell, obviously. But uh, assuming that the, um, the way the, the various countries, OPEC and, and the other members, have worked together so far, uh, and that they do agree to to extend, then there's no reason to see why oil shouldn't at least remain stable, if not increase further. It's been an interesting period since the summer of 2014 when oil were, was at its sort of peaks of around $110 per barrel. Um, then it suddenly crashed. Um, a combination of factors, glut, falling demand, emerging markets in trouble, uh, everyone's expectations of Chinese growth had to change, Um, you know, shale oil was on the rise, Um, you know, all these factors came into play. And up until that point, OPEC had very little influence. Ironically, that when prices were really high, they had very little influence over energy markets. I think at one point, their their production share was down into the 30s in terms Mm -hmm. of percentages. Mm -hmm. Now they're up at about 40%, which gives them a bit more leeway. But um, that period has been really, there have been a lot of upheaval for oil producers. You know, seeing your oil price ha- more than half, actually. I mean, it's about half now, mm, but mm. at one point it was in the 20s. It was 26, remember? yeah. Yeah, which yeah. was, I mean, nobody predicted that, right? No. Except the craziest of analysts. Yeah. I think Royal Bank of Scotland was the only one that, that yeah. said it. Well, they're, they're good at predicting well, stuff, aren't you they? You know, people <laughs> wondered, are they, how are they still alive? We thought yeah. they'd gone. Um, but, you know, we, it's, we, as people have been watching the energy markets for the last few years, there's been rapid change, hasn't there? Mm, absolutely, yeah. Um, Obviously, technological changes have, have accelerated, um, and uh, that com- it was a perfect storm, really, in, in sort of 2013, 2014, because you had a, you had the slowing global economy, which meant demand was falling anyway. You had technological advancements, which meant um, U.S. Uh, shale oil production um, suddenly became much more affordable. Um, you know, w- within the range of sort of uh, break even at sixty dollars a barrel. Um, now. Immediately after the crash, a lot of the US, initial US shale startups um, were not efficient enough to deal with that, and they closed or they were bought out by some of the bigger companies. Um, but there's been a lot of cost-cutting um, and a realignment of efficiencies and an increase in technology, which now allows 
um, both majors and and U.S. shale players to produce oil at uh, a much lower cost. For instance, BP now says it can produce oil at profit at $45 a barrel um, after two, three, four years of, of pretty harsh cost-cutting um, uh, and expenditure um, rearrangements. Um, and, and the U.S., with technological developments and a new understanding of how uh, uh, the shale oil um, process works, of course, is now also much more efficient. So those pressures um, and, and the global economy has until relatively recently been uh, been in the doldrums. So those pressures all, all combined in, in one perfect storm, which hadn't happened before, really. I mean, you could say, yeah, oil prices crashed in the 70s, but that was for, that was for different reasons, really. Um, so I guess the current situation is, is with an improving global economy um, and extended oil cuts, then the outlook, near-term outlook, certainly the traders and markets are thinking is, is, is a positive one. And that's why um, prices are, are recovering and may, may well recover further, I think. Uh, I, what I find fascinating is that the, the energy markets or the energy companies were quite realistic quite quickly. I mean, the, this idea of lower for longer in terms of oil prices emerged, you know, fairly rapidly. Usually people mm. live in denial mm-hmm. for quite mm-hmm. a bit of time. Um, and But hundreds of millions of, of, of dollars worth of projects were shelved. Um, companies completely changed. I mean, Shell, for example, is not the company it was before the oil price crash. It's completely reorientated itself towards um, gas, for example, yeah. which sees in the future, yeah. which, again, gas prices fall and rise with oil prices, yeah. typically. Um, but it's also affected the downstream players, particularly in this region where when oil prices were high, they had the advantage of cheap feedstock, gas, oil feedstock, that's not the case anymore. So there's been a huge, huge ripple effect across uh, the value chain, upstream, downstream, you name it. Um, But more importantly is how these companies, as you said, touching upon that, have come out and said, you know what, we're dealing with a new environment. So whether it was the shale oil producers Mm -hmm. saying, you know, we can produce uh, at lower costs, or the bigger energy players um, saying that, or even more recently, ConocoPhillips, for example, saying that we've put a ceiling on any project that can't make money at under $70 a barrel. So essentially, we've, we're in an era where nobody's expecting oil prices to go back near $100. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And maybe even geopolitically, uh, socially in this region, in the Gulf region, no one wants it to go back that high. Mm-hmm. The amount of reforms that have been put in place, the liberalization of, of for example, petrol prices yeah. here, um, the, the the removal of a lot of subsidies, the, the changes in Saudi Arabia could not have, have come yeah. about in the climate where oil was double what it is now. No, I mean, there were, effectively, the, particularly this region was awash with cash, wasn't it? And um, and subsidies were 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 expected, um, indeed thought of as a right, really. Um, and and yeah, it was a huge shakeup. The, the, this crash was a huge shakeup, more so than in the seventies, I think. Um, yeah, we had the seventies, the eighties, and the nineties where you had periods, but there was, you know, and while they might have lasted for a long time, relatively speaking, yeah. there wasn't the reaction. It seems no, no. that there is now. And I, th- I think it's a reflection of, of the world in general. Um, you know, the, the, there, was, there was no internet then, of course, and there was no online trading. There was no anything like Are that. Are we becoming better at dealing with disruption? I think we've become used to it, and therefore we're mentally and uh, from a business perspective much more agile. Um, and therefore, and e- even on a state level, you know, um, in the, this, this region has showed it with the speed with which it put those um, reforms together. Okay, it was pressured by the IMF in a lot of cases, but it doesn't have to respond to that pressure. It, it realized fully itself that, yes, you've got to move, and we've got to move quick. 
Um, and, and I yeah. wonder how much technology plays into it. I mean, in the, amount, in the 90s, sure, yeah. you, didn't, you don't have technology changing as rapidly as you yeah. have no. digitalization of the oil fields, um, the enhanced recovery techniques using carbon dioxide, for example. Um, you know, all these things have, have, have come into play where um, companies are saying, you know what, we can do more for less, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a, another element and the reflection of uh, the digitalization of the workforce and the, you know the in, the introduction of robotics in areas where um, and computers where it was previously people doing things and that makes things much quicker and it means you can change them much more quickly you don't need to retrain a robot you just reprogram it um, so uh, I think I think the speed of change that happened since 2014 is reflective of the modern world we're living in um, and and change has to be quick now because everything else is quick and if you're slow you're going to get you're going to be left behind um, so we've seen a lot of change we've seen a lot of response um, in the early days of the crash Saudi Arabia and other producers within OPEC were we're not going to cut our output we're not going to try and be swing producers we're going to go for market share everyone knows the big game is China we're going to try and dominate that market the UAE was involved in that as well so no, everyone was pumping and then about a year ago, um, there was a, an agreement between OPEC and non-OPEC producers, predominantly Russia, but nine other countries, where they said, all right, we will take, I think it was 1.8 million barrels per day off the market. That's the plan. And they've been doing that pretty successfully since January, actually. And, and, and in the last year, oil prices have propped up. As you were saying, they're, they're over $60 a barrel now. Um, and they've been stable, more, mm -hmm. more importantly, actually. Um, there haven't been this huge volatility mm -hmm. that we'd seen in, in, in more recent years. Um, and so that, that's been a huge change. Now, is the strategy working? Now, depending on who you listen to. So the EIA's latest demand forecasts for this year, 1.5 million barrels per day extra. Next year, 1.3 million barrels mm -hmm. per day. Not huge. Well, from OPEC's perspective, um, that's a, a bit of a problem as well because the EIA also... Um, says that by next year, the U.S. will be producing 9.9 .9 million barrels um, a day from 9.3 million last month. And it also forecasts that the U.S. will be a net exporter by 2026. I mean, the cra one, one thing that the crash did do, the crash of prices, was that it took a lot of shale oil producers out. Mm. And in fact, uh, oil production in the U.S., which had been rising, then tapered off and declined. But as you say, now with the price going up, Shell producers are very rapid in terms of their response. They can lower costs and they can get back online and pump. Um, but, you know, about in terms of the U.S. becoming the exporter in the future of oil, there's a lot of discussion around peak demand, when that will mm -hmm. be. Mm -hmm. Everyone's debating when, you know, the likes of electric cars and, mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. other technologies mm -hmm. will come into play. However, the broader picture is, is that, as I was saying earlier about downstream, the, a lot of oil producers are moving quickly to understand that um, – they can get more for every barrel mm -hmm. and every barrel doesn't necessarily have to go onto the market first or go onto the ships first. They can actually refine them, uh, turn them into other things. And, you know, there's a lot of technology being worked on out there that would still require high hydrocarbons. Absolutely. But not necessarily as we understand it now. I th well, yeah, I think that's the fundamental change. It's, 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 I think, fairly rapidly going to be a situation where um, a barrel of oil is not sold as a barrel of oil or if it is, it's sold to a refiner. Um, again, the EIA has um, long-term forecasts, which, okay, it's very long-term and, and, and um, you know, is subject to, to major fluctuation. But it's, it sees oil at uh, $86 a barrel by 2025 and 100 or above by 2040. Now, at the moment, that might seem ludicrous, but there is, 
there is, there is a theoretical scenario where where you could possibly say that those are not so ludicrous. Um, as we were saying, the whole industry upstream and downstream is moving to a situation where a barrel of oil per se is not a particularly valuable commodity. But with the expansion, let's take for example the Philippines, okay? There's 100 million people currently live in the Philippines. It's one of the fastest growing uh, economies in the world and has been for the past few years. The IMF says that is going to continue for the foreseeable future. So let's say by 2040 there's 120 Filipinos and let's say given the economic growth um, trajectory as is keeps going, um, let's say 90 million of them are what you would term middle class. That's way, way more than, than available now. So you have 90 million people who are now able to buy a car, an electric car, uh, presumably by then. Um, every electric car requires a range of products, many, many of which are derived from ref refined petroleum um, products. Um, so you can see that with the idea that, that an, uh, the price of a barrel of oil could hit $100, uh, in the Philippines at the moment, you have next year opening a $20 billion refinery. Um, so let's say that the Philippines, which does not have any of its gas, uh, oil or gas particularly itself, I think it peaked at around uh, 39,000 barrels a day in 2014, which compared to the US's 9.9 .9 million, uh, puts it in context. So they, ha they will, and of course they have uh, their own motor manufacturing facilities anyway at the moment, so they're going to expand those. They need to make the parts for the cars. Parts of the cars come generally from a barrel of oil. They don't have their own oil, but they will have the refinery capacity to produce um, the necessary parts for the for the automotive market. That means for them to buy a barrel of oil at $100 makes a lot, and refine it themselves into a series of products that are worth maybe $800, makes a lot more sense than buying $800 worth of refined products to turn into into car parts themselves and then having to charge double that. Uh, which puts it out of the price range of people who want to buy them. So I think we'll see, uh, and you can you can replicate that across anywhere that doesn't have vast resources of oil itself, um, assuming three things, of course. Uh, the U.S. shale does start to, to tail off, that OPEC reacts um, in, a, in a positive manner, and that the world, most crucially, that the world economy keeps developing in a positive uh, way and we don't see any major, major crashes. But that effectively is, is what we'll see. A lot of new oil refineries, I think, being built, um, particularly in countries that don't have uh, resources themselves, because demand will be driven by consumers' um, need for refined products or products that are produced from refined crude. So you buy a barrel of crude, you turn it into something that you need. More Business Extra in just a moment, but first allow me to tell you about The National's other podcasts. Beyond the Headlines takes a deeper dive into the biggest news from the week with a distinct Middle Eastern point of view. And Extra Time from our esteemed sports desk is the best place to chat about the English Premier League and more. Subscribe to both shows as well as this one on Apple Podcasts or find us as always at thenational.ae. Chris Nelson is with me. We're talking about OPEC and oil. We've been having a fascinating discussion about the future of it. Uh, we're going to get somebody equally fascinating on the line from Bahrain. Omar Al-Ubaidli is one of the National's weekly columnists, writes about economics in general, fascinating stuff. His column is called Economics 101. He is also a researcher at Darasat in Bahrain. 
So Omar, uh, thanks for joining us uh, down the line from Bahrain. Um, I know you've been looking at this topic a lot um, and you've got your own certain viewpoints, but can you sort of paint a picture from your point of view of where OPEC is at the moment? At the moment, OPEC um, is, I would say, almost at a crossroads. It's historically um, been much more about uh, giving the impression of being strong than actually being strong and effective. But that changed quite dramatically in December in 2016, when for the first time in about 40 years, they actually had uh, a substantial effect on oil markets that wasn't smoke and mirrors. Um, and, uh, that's, um, and that's something that is very, very, very surprising from the perspective of um, microeconomics or industrial economics, sort of str- basically <clears throat> the field of economics that deals with uh, cartels and, uh, uh, and uh, market shares and so on. Uh, and now we're coming to the stage where <clears throat> if they keep extending these cuts, they're going to be doing something which is basically unprecedented. Um, uh, and, and it seems very unlikely on paper, um, but um, uh, they may have, depending on the political climate, they may be able to put it, pull it off um, for another six months or so. What, ma- so, what makes you think it's uh, unlikely? Because obviously the, the traders appear to think it is likely. Um, you know, if you've got oil today at its highest, it looks like it's going to close at its highest since June 2015, presumably off the back of the fact that, um, that the market expects uh, cuts to be extended. Do you not think that's the case then? So I would say that if you look at the economic fundamentals, if you look at it as a sort of dispassionate economist, mm-hmm. what they're doing is, is defies exp- explanation. Um, so in that sense, it's unlikely. But it is, as you say, the markets think it's likely. And I agree with them in the sense that there's a, there's a very strange configuration of political factors that transform what is, you know, uh, an economic contortion of sorts into something that is um, uh, that is uh, uh, that is ca- uh, able to be achieved, but it's still quite sensitive. It's still, uh, it's still quite um, it's liable to unravel at any second. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's something to bear in mind. So the the linchpin of this latest approach by OPEC has been Saudi Arabia's and Russia's agreement to restrain output to shore up oil prices. Obviously, when you're saying it's been a surprise, that's probably been the biggest surprise of all, isn't it? Uh, yes. I mean, basically, to get a sense of how um, improbable uh, or how much of a mission impossible it is to do OPEC's job under normal circumstances, the three biggest oil producers in the world are USA, Russia, and Saudi Arabia. And two of them are not part of OPEC. Uh, so, I mean, the idea of making a cartel where two out of the three biggest producers aren't even in the cartel, that tells you how, you know, how difficult uh, or basically impossible it is to do. But what's happened, and, and in the past, when OPEC has tried to cooperate with Russia, although it's difficult to know exactly whom to believe, but basically, the, I think it was in the late 90s, they had an agreement, and then, at least according to OPEC, Russia violated that agreement, pretty sure, and did not cut out, but the way they had claimed they, they, they claimed they were going to cut out. But, uh, and so Russia doesn't have, at least from OPEC's perspective, a particularly good CV when it comes to cooperating. But um, on this occasion, um, as I say, for non-economic factors, I would say, Russia has decided to um, uh, behave in a manner which OPEC uh, uh, regards as you know, acceptable for, for 
for organizing or managing the market. Uh, and that's, as you say, have been the linchpin. Um, and without that, it's, it's back, to, back to all out. Or... And the politics of it, if I bring in the market share aspect, because, I mean, part of the rationale um, of the OPEC's output rest- OPEC, non-OPEC output, rest- output restraint deal was to, to kind of mop up the glut and liquidity that had been out there in, in oil markets. However, it was OPEC and particularly Saudi Arabia um, that had been responsible for this glut ever since the prices crash in 2014, because even though prices were low, they pursued a market share strategy, which meant that they didn't care where the prices went as long as they were getting their product to the end user. And the end user in this case is predominantly Asia and predominantly China. Now, in the old days, uh, the biggest consumer in the world was the US, right? But um, the dynamics have changed somewhat. So how does all that politics fit into the idea that they're all competing for market share anyway in uh, in Asia? Exactly. I'm going to strongly disagree with your characterization of Saudi Arabia being responsible for the glut. If you actually look at the data on oil production uh, prior and after 2014, Saudi Arabia actually had a very, very ne- basically a negligible effect on output. The reason prices collapsed is because of increasing output from Iraq and from Libya, uh, primarily. Um, Saudi Arabia, if you look at, as I say, if you look at the period 2010 to 2015, 16, 17, output's more or less flat. There's some ups and downs, but it's definitely not the case that it was some sudden aggressive move by Saudi Arabia, which led to the increase in output or the collapse in prices. Let me nuance it. Let me nuance it then. They were unwilling to act as the, as the sort of break on it. They, they, they said, we won't um, restrain our output to shore up prices. That's, that's yeah, definitely, so, so by not doing something, they did something in a way. Well, yes, yes. But, but basically the, what happened is that in the past, um, they were willing to restrain output um, because they had a sort of unwritten accord, or maybe written, I don't know, but it seems like an unwritten accord with the U.S. Uh, to, to intervene in all markets, to keep all markets, uh, and since the 70s, to keep all markets relatively balanced. And they were willing to bear the cost of having be the one that cuts output or increases output, perhaps in a way that's not optimal from its own perspective. Um, but two things change. First of all, you know, after Obama, your relations have not been so good between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. And secondly, um, more importantly, is that there's been shale oil. So whereas if Saudi Arabia have cut the, put, put the uh, brakes on in the 80s or 90s, it would have a substantial effect. Now it would be economic suicide um, if you don't make sure there's enough other people joining in because shale oil would just swallow up your market share in a way that was not possible 15, 20 years ago. I so think- even though... It, so even the sorry, so even the Saudi Arabian failure to act is is something which is entirely reasonable. It's not it's not even a change of uh, a substantial change in strategy because the environment of all markets has changed fundamentally because of shale oil. And do you think the the relationship between uh, Russia and Saudi now is in some ways um, a two way two way beneficial street? Because obviously um, Russia, given its given the sanctions over its annexation of Crimea, is uh, short on FDI. We had King Salman in um, in Moscow last month, signing billions of dollars of uh, deals. Um, so, so the uh, t- closer ties between Russia and and uh, Saudi and uh, by effect OPEC um, is a, is a two way street. Do you think? Do you think sh- should um, 
the situation with Russian FDI change? Uh, should sanctions be lifted? At, at, at then the the relationship between Saudi and OPEC and Russia uh, over oil might be threatened. So I would say that um, the the driving force from the Russian side is partially economic, partially political. They've been um, so Obama's strategy um, uh, of, of secular strategy of withdrawing um, U.S. influence from the Middle East, and it's been followed up to some extent recently, uh, has basically presented them, um, created a vacuum, a political vacuum in the Middle East, which the Russians have been invited to fill by some parties, and they've moved themselves um, uh, as well. Uh, so part of it is just political. They're like, look, there's an opportunity to make some new partnerships in the Middle East. Why not? Secondly, as you say, there's the economic side. They're, they're hurting from sanctions. They're hurting from low oil prices. Uh, and they certainly wouldn't say no to, uh, to being partners with a, with a wealthy country like Saudi Arabia. And I think also the final point is, and this is a minor one, but I mean, it's also, uh, all, all, you know, although Russian foreign policy is mostly, I would say, pragmatic, I think there is uh, a little, little bit of a sticking it to the U.S. Uh, in the, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia, especially in the domain of oil, has been traditionally a partner of the U.S. and, uh, and now uh, sort of to get one over the U.S., let Saudi Arabia be an oil partner of Russia. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because if we go back uh, in the history of OPEC, uh, obviously founded in 1960 in, in Baghdad um, and then grew as oil markets grew as well. And in the 70s, famously, they they provided the oil shocks that shook the U.S. and, and Western countries in particular. And, but then it seemed for a while in the 80s in particular that they, their influence on global politics had waned somewhat. Um, and so, you know, how, how, how is it as an organization has OPEC managed to kind of stay relevant in a way if they have at all? So, um, first of all, there's a researcher called uh, Jeff Colgan. He's a professor at Brown University, and he's done a lot of very detailed work on this. Um, and, and much of it is surprising. So his paper is called The Emperor's Clothes, and it's a reference to OPEC. Uh, if you look at the data from 1980 to 2009, the compliance rate with OPEC quotas is 4%. Uh, and most of that 4% is from technical difficulties, i.e. the country couldn't even, uh, would have increased output probably if it could, but it can't increase output. So it's only accidentally complying with a quota. Um, uh, and if you look at how the OPEC countries produce output, uh, produce oil um, compared to non-OPEC countries, you find that statistically they're indistinguishable. So you have this basically, for the majority of, uh, uh, of OPEC's history, they're actually not behaving, in, not having any influence in the market with the exception of Saudi Arabia, which I mentioned had a sort of special unwritten deal with the U.S., so then that begs the question, so well, why on earth do they continue and why on earth did everybody continue to propagate this myth that, that, that uh, OPEC is having a big effect? And Jeff Colgan actually provides some good uh, explanation, which is that all the different stakeholders have an incentive to, prop- to perpetuate the myth. On the side of the oil ministers and the countries that are members in OPEC, of course they enjoy being able to, if, if people are willing to believe that, they, that, they're, that they're able to hold Western countries by the throat and to threaten them with, you know, with uh, changing oil prices, then you know, that's prestigious, that's attractive. So they're happy to propagate the myth. And then the Western countries are quite happy to uh, perpetuate the myth that, that OPEC wields huge influence because it's a nice scapegoat for any economic difficulty. Uh, you know, oh, it's those Saudi Arabians or those Arabs playing with uh, oil prices. 
Uh, and so um, you have a situation where normal people don't understand these nuances, but the key stakeholders um, have an incentive. And journalists, of course, they want to, you know, they, they like to sell these uh, um, very uh, attractive stories about OPEC politics, geopolitics, you know, uh, countries threatening other countries. So it's really mostly smoke and mirrors with the exception of December 2016, when something very fundamental changed, um, as I say, due to political reasons. But for the most part, OPEC has stayed relevant by playing a clever game of smoke and mirrors. So I can use the analogy of the English Football League club, Liverpool, who were sort of winning everything in the 70s and in their peak. And then since then, they've they've not really been at the races, yet everyone perpetuates the myth that, that they are still a big club and could at any moment dominate. And then, um, you know, it, it continues to keep that cycle going of the brand and the and the history. And so OPEC very much had its moment and then the moment went away. And then as you say it now, surprisingly, they, they pulled something out of their back pocket and that was uh, managing to get the Russians to the table plus nine other producers to agree to this restraint deal that's lifted oil prices and made everybody watch them again. And now this meeting that we talked about earlier coming up on November 30th, suddenly everyone cares. When I can remember so many OPEC meetings where everyone said, oh, nothing's going to happen here. They're not going to agree anything. Um, how many times has that happened in the last few years? Yeah, and I, I agree 100%. The, uh, I mean, when, when journalists have been asking me for my opinion on OPEC meetings for the last two years, every meeting, including December 1, I would say, Nothing's going to happen. Um, it is wasting everyone's time. I don't even know why they're continuing with this act. And then in December, I was just completely gobsmacked. And, and we shouldn't be surprised by, you know, it's not like OPEC are incompetent. I should clarify that there are no global cartels. I mean, with the exception of De Beers, where there's like one company that owns like 90% of the market. But the, if, you, if you look at an economics textbook and you try and find what are the conditions you need to make a cartel, um, every single one of those conditions is spectacularly violated by OPEC. You need, you need like a small number of producers in close geographic proximity, producing a homogenous product in a way where they can monitor each other and so on and so forth. And in it, if, if I gave you the specifications of OPEC, you'd say this is, this is the worst possible scenario for trying to build a cartel. And then you add to it shale oil. And you add to it the sort of political infighting for, for non-oil reasons, for example, Saudi Arabia and Iran and so forth. And, and it's, just, it's just a mission impossible. Um, but some, something bizarre happened in December, um, and maybe they can keep it going for a little bit. But sooner or later, I expect the, uh, uh, the Russians to you know, um, have other goals, and, and, and then that will probably lead to a breakdown. I mean, just to pick up on that point of, of having all the conditions necessary not to be able to create a successful cartel. I mean, growing up, I've always sort of had this sort of ad admiration for OPEC, I guess, being an Arab and an Iraqi. We don't have many things that we can be um, over the last decades being proud of. But OPEC was one of those as being a very dominant global body in a very important industry that everyone kept talking about in not necessarily always a negative way. Um, so it, from what you say is that it's, a, it's an anomaly, essentially. The fact that it actually continues and it actually can do things. Uh, so it's an anomaly. What they did in December is, is definitely a spectacular. No, as a group, no, as a group, its existence is an anomaly. Is what is what? Is yeah, what so you're it, it is an anomaly. Yeah, I mean, oh, look at it. Do, do you know? Uh, can you name any other cartel in any other product market? I can't. I mean, it just it doesn't happen. These things don't exist. 
the original, I mean, the, the, the benchmark or the, the, the progenitor, I should say, of OPEC was this Texas cartel, which, you know, which was composed of Texas producers in, you know, producing in similar conditions in close geographical proximity and so on and so forth. And even that broke down very quickly after it started. So, you know, something closer to the ideal conditions was doomed to failure very quickly. And if you look at the history of cartels in every product market, they all, if they, if they do, you know, succeed, they succeed very fleetingly. So, it is a spectacular anomaly that these countries continue to uh, operate in this way and have this expensive office in Vienna and so on and so forth. And, and up until December 2016, I would have said they're just completely wasting their money. Um, but, but, yeah, as I say, something, something they're anomalous historically and they're especially anomalous um, in, the, in the year 2017. I mean, as a, as a sort of tangent, let's talk a little bit about cartels because to some people out there listening, they might take that as a negative term. But what exactly mm-hmm. is a cartel from, from, from your side? So a cartel in terms of, you know, basic economic theory is a, is a um, basic when a group of producers um, decide to coordinate their output. And in particular, that means in order for it to be effective that they coordinate cuts in output. Um, and if they represent a substantial enough share in the market, their coordinated cutting of output can lead to an increase in prices. Now, it definitely is a is a negative term because it's considered, uh, 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 you know, an, an unfair market uh, intervention, and every single antitrust body would uh, would not permit outlaws cartel behaviour. So OPEC doesn't describe itself as a cartel; it describes itself as a group which exists to, you know, regulate um, oil prices. And, and they can point to a few examples. For example, during the Gulf War. I mean, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, when OPEC, and particular Saudi Arabia, increased output to stop, you know, um, sharp upward rise, uh, sharp spikes in, in prices due to Kuwaiti production going offline. So they consider themselves price regulators in a sort of vague, symmetric sense. But a cartel, which is ultimately what OPEC has to be about if they if uh, if if have to, to have any economic bite, is about restricting output in order to raise prices. So, I mean, it's sort of a function of what they do. So if, if, we, if, we look at, if we sort of look at OPEC broadly, we can't just say they're a cartel. There is a, they, they have a function that could act as a cartel when needed, but also they, they are um, influencing uh, the dynamics of the oil market, as you said, when there was a time when they needed prices to come down, um, when there's a lot of geopolitical risk in the region, they did that. Also, they, they clearly act um, as a, a forum for discussion because they don't just meet uh, with the full ministerial meetings um, to discuss uh, oil policy, but they have continuous technical meetings and, and they're continuously putting out information into the market and and so they're also they also have a, a broader function than that um you know and perhaps we can touch upon some of the other things that opec does um to kind of say that they are actually a, a lot bigger than than it seems uh, on face value maybe but even if you take the case of cutting or, or expanding output it's not really opec that does it it's just saudi arabia that does it if you look at that data from 1980 to 2009 in detail the only country that uh, you know that's why saudi arabia has earned the name um, or the title swing producer, it was the one that would cut output or increase output in order to sort of offset what was going on in everywhere else. But most other countries basically were, or so say, all the other countries inside and outside OPEC were basically producing as much as they would, um, um, as much as they can, uh, uh, without any reference to what was going on in the rest of the market. So Saudi Arabia was playing that role due to its own uh, geopolitical ties to the US. Um, but OPEC itself... Uh, yeah, it has these technical meetings. Um, uh, it has these uh, other functions, 
Um, but OPEC itself never really did uh, uh, the market interventions. Saudi Arabia did the market interventions. And so in the last year, um, we've seen, as you said, the anomaly of the anomaly, if you like, where yes. OPEC has suddenly anomaly become, squared. yeah, anomaly squared. Um, and uh, OPEC has suddenly become immensely influential. Um, the meeting came up on November 30th. Everyone's watching it. As Chris was saying earlier, huge expectation they're going to extend this deal beyond March, possibly till the end of the year. Now, um, what I find fascinating has been watching OPEC for some years now is usually the producers within the organization could never get on the same page in terms of messaging. The African producers had one point of view, the Arab producers another, et cetera, et cetera. Venezuela has its own entire three podcast episode uh, <laughs> list of things that, that are affecting it now. So that's that's definitely an outlier. And then you've got countries that come in and out of OPEC and, and, and stay and go, et cetera. So, but they have been on the same page in the last 12 months. It's incredible how well the messaging has been in terms of, of everybody singing from the same hymn sheet, which to me is anomaly cubed, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, you, you, the, the, the differences between producers in their message, that's 100% to be expected, and that's why every cartel breaks down. Every company has its own cost conditions, its own uh, goals, its own, uh, its own priorities. Uh, and so, of course, you, you, why, why on earth would they all be singing from the same hymn sheet? And, you know, collectively, they only account for around, actually, at the moment, they account for about 40% of OPEX, 40% of the market. So it's not even like they control that much of the market anyway. If you add Russia, then they're just over 50%, or Russia and the other producers, then you're looking at about 60% market share amongst them. So um, the fact that they're all agreeing, now, part of it, let's, so, you know, you have Russia and these former Soviet companies, uh, Soviet com former Soviet countries joining in, as well as the Latin American countries. I think they're all falling underneath the sort of Russian sphere of influence. Um, uh, so, um, whereas the Middle Eastern producers uh, and the African ones are to some extent falling under the Saudi sphere of influence, although obviously Algeria uh, and Libya listen to Russia and have good ties to Russia too. So, we have a, a bizarre configuration whereby almost all the countries except um, except uh, Qatar, or I guess is a sort of outlier, fall under the sphere of influence of one of these two. Because, you know, Iran may be a rival with the US, Saudi Arabia, but it's definitely willing to, uh, uh, has a good partnership with Russia, uh, as does Iraq. So, so yeah, it is, uh, it is, again, a very strange situation, but they're all united at the moment by, by, by needing an economic boost, so that helps. Uh, but as you can see, it's still fragile. There are so many ways in which it could break down at any point. Uh, uh, and I expect that to happen at some point in the future, although exactly when, um, uh, if any of us knew, we'd all be millionaires, I guess. If we're looking, to, looking forward a bit, uh, as you were there, um, Omar, um, given that U.S. shale has been a game changer in the past couple of three years, um, uh, to what extent do you see that continuing in the future? I mean, the EIA predicts that... Um, the U.S. will become a net exporter by 2026, but it predicts that uh, U.S. shale output will peak in 2030 and will continue to decline through to 2050. So can you foresee a situation where OPEC, if you like, comes back to its perceived position of, of global strength in the face of waning U.S. shale oil output? So I should say that first first point to make is that people get paid millions of dollars to make predictions about the future of oil, and, and they get com they're completely wrong. So and that, and that's not because they're incompetent; it's because it's very very difficult. In the case of shale oil, the difficulty is amplified because most of the it's, it, the, the industries on the technological frontier, 
and most of the um, cutting-edge technological information that you need in order to make forecasts is proprietary and secret. It's you know these companies are fighting tooth and nail to stay solvent, uh, and they're constantly developing new ways which we didn't know about six months ago, one year ago, two years ago, and so uh, and and they and, they, and these are industrial secrets. They don't go around telegraphing to everyone. Oh well, this is how we cut production costs here, or this is how much we expect to be able to get out of this well. So nobody, including the shale oil companies themselves, has a good idea of which way shale oil is going because it's because it's so close to the cutting edge. There is an expectation that you know that um, or the belief that these shale oil is is milking the or grabbing the low hanging fruit and that things will become more expensive, difficult. But you know the same that we were saying that two years ago, uh, and they kept on coming up with new ways to cut costs. It doesn't seem plausible that they'll continue to be able to cut costs. But you know, stranger things have happened. Okay. Having said that, um, I do expect. Um, uh, shale oil to eventually start hitting some sort of uh, uh, ceiling uh, because it doesn't seem uh, particularly plausible. Um, and if you look at a sort of macro historical sense of technology across all different fields, that you'd continue getting these sort of cost improvements um, for a very, very long period of time. And that would rehabilitate OPEC, in particular, um, the low cost producers like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iraq. Um, uh, versus, you know, places like uh, Venezuela, which have uh, more expensive uh, oil. Um, so, yeah, so in that sense, something, things may be a little bit rosier for OPEC in the future, but the, the error, the, the possibility of error in those predictions is, is huge, and it's just getting better and bigger with, uh, with, oil, with the shale oil's fundamentally uncertain production environment. Omar Al-Ubaidli, thanks so much for joining us from Bahrain. Fascinating discussion. Of course, uh, everyone will read your weekly columns uh, in The National, and uh, we look forward to speaking to you soon. Thank you. My pleasure. That was Omar Al-Ubaidli from Darasat in Bahrain. He was talking to Chris Nelson and I about OPEC and the wider question of energy markets and the future. Chris, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks to our producer, Kevin Jeffers, of course. Thank you to you all for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week. Do check out our fuller coverage at thenational.ae. Until then, goodbye.